Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians this morning as we begin our study? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thank you so much, worship team. We appreciate your ministry this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, by now you are aware of why the letter was written. You are aware of the fact that there were people in Thessalonica who misunderstood or were uh, diverted from Paul's original letter relative to the coming of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord. They thought with all the problems that they were going through that they had missed the day of the Lord and they were flat in the middle of the tribulation. So they're worried and they're anxious and Paul writes to them to encourage them to remind them that they haven't missed the day of the Lord, that there's a couple of things that have to happen first and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There has to be the apostasy first and then the revelation of the man of lawlessness spoken of in chapter 2 verse 3 he says let no one deceive you let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of perdition of the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God Do you not remember, while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only the one who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. That tells us that the man of lawlessness will be revealed, and it tells us uh, in in those verses a little bit about his... um, uh, Activity, what he's going to do. He's an, uh, a person who uh, the Bible speaks of in several different places, referring to him as the beast, sometimes calling him the Antichrist. But the man of lawlessness is uh, revealed here and uh, discussed. And we are told in verses 6 and 7, and you know what restrains him now. Well, we don't know for sure what restrains him now. It's obvious that the Thessalonians did, but there is someone, apparently verse seven, in light of verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is the restrainer? Last week we talked about the fact it doesn't say for sure, but we believe it's probably the Holy Spirit who restrains the man of lawlessness and blocks the uh, activities of Satan on the earth, and he will continue to do that for a period of time, and then his blocking ministry will be set aside, and Satan will be able to do pretty much whatever he wants to do on the earth. And that brings us to the message of the morning. Last week we talked about the man of lawlessness, and we talked about the fact that he is being limited relative to what he can do on the earth, but there's coming a time when he will be released to do what he wants, and he's going to do everything his imagination can uh, dictate to him, because the man of lawlessness realizes that down the road uh, God has prepared for him a place called the lake of fire and it is uniquely designed the Bible says for the devil and his angels 
and he knows his ultimate destination. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about Jesus first coming to this earth. And when Jesus came and walked the uh, streets of Jerusalem and walked through the uh, walked through the land of Israel, it was incredible the number of times that he engaged satanic activity. The number of times he dealt with demons. And the number of times he exercised people of demons and eliminated physical problems, emotional problems that people had. Demon activity was at an all-time high when Jesus came to the earth. It's kind of like Satan is aware of Jesus' plan and his agenda, and so he tries to meet him uh, force against force in an effort to dispel the power and the purposes and the plan of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that the closer we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ, what we call the rapture, described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, it seems the closer we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church, this demon activity is increased once again. Not just in localized places, but worldwide. It's like Satan is aware of the plan and the purposes of God, and so he anticipates and he begins his movement and his activity, kind of steps everything up, even though at this present time he is being restrained. He's being held back by the restrainer. We believe it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus comes back, the Bible's pretty clear that the work of the, rest, uh, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is going to be lifted. And pardon me for, the way, uh, for saying it this way, but all hell is going to break loose on the earth. It is going to be one incredible place. As this final battle, this final conflict between God and Satan... Satan and Jesus Christ comes to a crescendo and a climax at the Battle of Armageddon and Satan is finally defeated. So as I was thinking about the second coming of Christ and the demonic world that uh, Satan is involved in today, my mind was taken back to a passage of scripture found in Luke chapter 8. It's one of several places we could go where Jesus encounters demon activity. And this morning, before we continue with our study of Second Thessalonians, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel account in Luke chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of these Gospel writers include this account beginning in Luke chapter 8. 8 and verse 26, this account of uh, Jesus and the demoniac. Luke 8 and verse 26. I'm going to read this whole section through uh, verse 39. Follow along. Luke 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now they here is Jesus and his disciples. So they have sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had when he came up, excuse me, and when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city, 
who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country, the Gerizines, and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he, Jesus, sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, if you read Matthew's account, you get the impression that there were two people. There were two demon, uh, demonized individuals. And probably it's Luke and uh, Mark who select just one of the two. I'm guessing the one who was the most outspoken, the one who was most engaging. But this is an incredible passage of Scripture. And when it comes to the subject of the demons, you, I think we need to be careful, on one hand, that we don't become overly zealous and preoccupied with Satan and demon activity, on one hand. But on the other hand, there's a problem when we're not informed at all relative to the fact that there is a spiritual world that we cannot see, we cannot touch, but it is very much there. And someday, possibly, our eyes will be open and we'll be able to see spiritual things that we cannot see now. But there, are, there is, my friends, a whole lot of activity in this very room that we can't see but it is because it is spiritual. So what I want us to do is look at this passage this morning where Jesus encountered with a demonized man in Luke 8 demonstrates to us the kind of world that he will encounter when he returns to the earth. You see, I think there's a pattern here. Satan is incredibly powerful, but he's not very creative. You and I are... Um, 
terribly inadequate to stand against him ourselves. But we are victorious over him because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is much more powerful than Satan. And our relationship with him then gives us the guaranteed assurance of our victory over him as well. Well, a question is asked, two questions I want to pose here at the beginning. What is a demon? And the second is, what does it mean to be demon-possessed? Verse uh, 27 uses that expression. Well, a demon, as best we can tell, is a fallen angel. The Bible tells us that uh, there was an occasion when a, an, a, um, an, one of the most significant of all of God's creation... Uh, an angel by the name of Lucifer began to declare what he was going to do and what he wasn't going to do, and he aspired to be equal with God. And he challenged God for his authority in the heavens. He was cast from the heavens to, to, uh, to the earth, and he took with him a third of the angelic uh, beings. And those angels, those fallen angels, became known as what, in what we call demons. And these demons do the bidding of Satan, their leader. And they are bent to destroy the plan and the purposes of God. And they do everything they can to intimidate people on the earth, particularly God's people, and to make life miserable for them. But they take possession and control. And so that brings the second uh, question. What does it mean to be possessed with demons? Verse 27 again says... And when he came up onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. What does it mean to be demon-possessed? Literally here, having demons. Well, uh, the Bible also uses the expression, a man with an unclean spirit, to speak of demon possession. Possessed with a spirit is another expression that is synonymous with demon possession. The Bible also uses the expression, many who had unclean spirits, speaking of people who were demon-possessed. Demon-possessed, or the word that's used here, might better be translated demonized. According to uh, Merle F. Unger in his book, Demons in the World Today, he describes it as a condition in which one or more evil spirits or demons inhabit the body of a human being and take complete control of their victim at will. By tempor temporarily blotting out his consciousness, they can speak and act through him as their complete slave or tool. Let me say that again. Demon possession or being demonized is a condition in which one or more evil spirits or demons inhabit the body of a human being and take complete control of their victim at will. By temporarily blotting out his consciousness, they can speak and act through him as their complete slave or tool. Now that is exactly what has happened to this individual that Jesus and the disciples meet when they dock their boat. The scripture tells us in Luke chapter 8 that they have a near-death experience on the Sea of Galilee as they are making their way to Decapolis or the area of the Gerasenes.
The winds come up, the waves come up, and the disciples think that they're going to die. They cry out to Jesus. Jesus stands up in the middle of the boat and says to the wind and the waves, Be quiet, and immediately they subside. So they've been scared out of their out of their minds and now they're pulling the boat up on the shore to a place that Jesus wants them to see for an experience that he wants them to have with an individual that he wants them to meet this is in many ways the beginning of the Great Commission because Jesus is taking his disciples to Decapolis to the country of the Gerizines which is a region outside of Jewish territory it's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, a place where Jews and Gentiles live together, a place where it's not uncommon to find a herd of pigs, something you would never find in a 100% Jewish-occupied area. Pigs are unclean animals to Jews, but pigs are moneymakers to a group of uh, farmers in, the, in this region of the Gerizines. So they come to the country of the Gerizines, which we are told is opposite of Galilee, in a region called Decapolis, which uh, is Greek for ten cities. And this is a, a region that is affected by Greek culture and also Roman culture. That explains the pig farm. And here Jesus introduces his disciples to a lost man, who is possibly not a Jew, but rather a Gentile. And in verse uh, 26, then, they've crossed the, the, uh, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. They've arrived at the other side, and they are met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in tombs. So here's the introduction. After being scared out of their lives on the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, now they're shocked to see this demon-possessed individual in, uh, in this, uh, as they pull their boat to the shore. First thing that I want to, to bring to your attention is that when Jesus returns to the earth, he will return to a world of people that recognize many gods. Demons seem to flourish in a region where people observe more than one God, like the Greeks and the Romans did in this particular region. In, this, uh, in, in the area of the Gerizines, these people would famili be familiar with gods like Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hestia, Apollo, and Hermes, all of Greek gods and also Roman gods, Venus, Jupiter, Pluto, Hercules, and Mars. The Jews, as I mentioned, worshipped and served only one god, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Greeks and the Romans served many gods. It was fertile territory for demonic activity. Because as Paul explained by way of warning to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 19, what do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. 
So he's talking in that context about meat that's being offered to idols and the Corinthians are wondering if it's appropriate to eat this meat or not eat this meat. And Paul is saying that these idols that uh, these Gentiles worship are basically demons. He says all of them are. They are demonic. They represent demons. So we would say, based upon what he says there, in light of where Jesus and the disciples are in the region of the Gerasenes, they are in fertile, uh, fertile uh, area for demonic activity because all idols in this area were demons. Now today, people worship the God of tolerance in our country and in many other countries of the world. Tolerance is the key word. In the United States... In other countries, it's okay if you worship and serve the God of the Bible, but don't leave the God, the God of the Muslims out. Don't leave the gods of the Buddhists out. Don't leave the gods of the Hindus or the Hare Krishnas, and on and on and on it goes. If you worship Jehovah God, if you worship the Lord Jesus Christ, that's fine, but there are other gods in this environment too, and you have a responsibility toward them as well. But the Bible doesn't give you and I that luxury. The Bible says in Joshua 24 and verse 15, Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying in that context, Listen, folks, you can worship the gods of your forefathers where they lived, or you can worship the gods that are here in the environment that you're living in now, the false gods, the, the gods of the Amorites, or you can worship the one true God, but you have to choose. There's no such thing as religious tolerance, either in Christianity or in any other religion as far as that goes. Because if you believe uh, that what you uh, observe is a reflection of truth, then everything else has to be untruth. And Christianity is very, very exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But in our culture, where we believe in many gods, the, particularly the God of tolerance, it is all religions lead ultimately to God. Well, the Bible says that's not true. There's only one way to God. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, His Son. The second thing that we would observe here from this experience that Jesus had with His disciples is found in verse 27. And that is a world of people with warped consciences. So Jesus and his disciples pull their battered boat to the shore in the country of the Gerasenes and are immediately introduced to a naked man from the city that lived in a cemetery. So apparently he used to live in the city, but now no longer lives there because he's not welcome there. He lives in the t among the tombs. He is a man literally having a demon, is what the, the text tells us. And this demon has taken complete control of his mental faculties. It explains why he has no clothes on, nor has he had clothes on for a significant period of time. He's living among the graves, 
And Matthew tells us that he was extremely violent. His sense of normal behavior had completely escaped him since he had been um, uh, demonized and he had no moral compass to help him grasp normal, acceptable behavior. So he is uh, seared, he's warped in his perception of reality. Which reminds me of the verse that we referred to last week when we talked about the coming age of apostasy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, But the Spirit explicitly says that on the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Paul is telling Timothy that at the end of time, just prior to Jesus' return, in the latter days, people's consciences are going to be seared and it's going to affect their understanding of the Bible. It's going to change their perspective on what the church has practiced and taught for hundreds and hundreds of years relative to absolute truth. People are going to question absolute truth. Their consciences, the expression here is, their consciences are going to be seared. That word in the original language means cauterized, burned and cauterized so that there is no feeling or sense in that particular area of the body. They're going to be numbed and insensitive to what is right and what is wrong. Now that strikes me in light of Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20 which talks about activity in the middle of the tribulation. The Apostle John under the inspiration describing what is going to take place says this, quote, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries, pharmakia in the original language, interestingly enough a reference to the use of drugs, nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. One of the marks of a demonized culture is the loss of a moral compass. A loss of what is right or wrong. A cauterization of their soul, so to speak. So that when truth is presented to them, they're incapable of to, responding to it because they are under the dominion and control of a demonic spirit. So when Jesus comes to earth, he's going to find a world of people that, re that recognize many gods, number one. Number two, a world of people with warped consciences. And number three, a world of people living in a distorted perspective of reality. The text says here that he was not living in a house, but he was living in tombs. Verse 27 again. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 17:15, "He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord." In other words, a culture which uh, justifies wrong and condemns the right is an abomination to the Lord. 
As we move closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, you're going to find in our culture, in the United States of America, and places all over the world, things that used to be right are going to be wrong, and things that used to be wrong are going to be right. There's going to be a complete reversal of what traditionally, historically used to be true. This is evidence of demon activity. The prophet wrote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21. He concludes by saying, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. We live in a time in the United States of America, and even worldwide this is true, where people are educated beyond their intelligence. And because they no longer see God as the revealer of truth, truth becomes anything that you want it to be. And as we've talked about this before, your truth is different than my truth. My truth is not the same as yours, but I need to respect you for your truth, and you need to respect me for my truth. It is absolutely insane, and it's going to get worse the closer we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah the prophet spoke condemnation of people who couldn't call truth truth and wickedness wickedness. When God's order is turned upside down, a child's unborn life becomes less important than a woman's right over her own body. Fifty years ago, something like that would have been considered insane. Now it's truth. Now it's the law of the land. It's an incredible time in which we live. And it's going to be interesting as uh, money gets tighter and health care becomes more and more expensive, what's going to happen to the older folks like uh, some of us here this morning relative to what is right and what is wrong in light of what is best for society and culture. There comes a time when you have served your usefulness and your effectiveness to society and therefore you are dispensable. We might laugh at it today, but folks, it's coming. It's coming. And it is part and parcel of truth being wrong and wickedness being right. A time predicted by Isaiah the prophet. So this demonized man lived in the cemetery, a place undesirable to people with a normal Judeo-Christian fear and respect for death. You don't find most people who believe in Jehovah God setting up housekeeping in the cemetery or among the tombs. But you would expect that among those who are controlled by demons. Number four, a world of people driven by self-destructive responses. And uh, Mark chapter 5, the account in Mark seems to draw this out more than in Luke. Mark adds to Luke, quote, This man was constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones and that word gashing in the original language means cutting himself to pieces he was cutting himself to pieces with rocks so here's this naked guy running through the tombs and he's making every effort to intimidate Jesus and the twelve disciples 
He's running at them. He's violent, which means he's probably running into them, hitting them. He's bleeding as the disciples look at him. They can see infected uh, lashes all over his body. And there are some that are partially healing, but he's covered with lacerations in his fully exposed naked body. He's a man in full mental torment as he's engaged in senseless, self-destructive activity which once again is consistent with demonic activity and when the restrainer is lifted from the world you can expect people to become in more and more engaged in this senseless kind of activity of cutting themselves for all kinds of different reasons this experience is uh, m- similar to what happened in 1 Kings chapter 18 and the encounter that Elijah had with the prophets at Mount Carmel. And do you remember the contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah was that an altar was built and uh, they were to call down fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal tried and tried and tried and Elijah begins to ridicule them. He begins to mock them. He begins to say that, well, maybe your uh, gods are asleep. Maybe they went on a long journey. Well, what he does just intensifies their effort to call down fire from heaven from the power of Baal And uh, it doesn't happen. And the scripture says uh, uh, in verse 28, they begin to cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the the blood gushed out on them. Now I would would think that 1 Kings chapter 18, even though it doesn't say that Baal worship is inspired or involved with demon activity, I would assume that in light of what we know elsewhere, that's very true. It is consistent with demon activity, the cutting of themselves. Jumping ahead in the coming tribulation according to Revelation chapter 9, John describes some ugly-looking locusts the size of horses prepared for battle. Imagine grasshoppers the size of horses prepared for battle. This is Revelation 9, verse 7. They will have human faces, and they will have tails like scorpions, verse 10, and they will have a sting that can put a person down for five months, where they will remain wishing wishing that they could die, but they will be unable to die. And John the Apostle tells us, quote, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon, all words synonymous with Satan. So these horse-sized grasshoppers looking absolutely hideous, come from the pit, and they are demonic. And they are bent on destruction, pain, and grief. So anytime you see senseless violence and killing and cutting of people in Scripture, sooner or later you can trace it to its ultimate demonic source, which is the pit of hell, a plan and a purpose that exists in total opposition to the plan and purposes of God. Number five, when Jesus returns to the earth 
we can expect that he will find a world of people that do not want him. They do not want Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he, the man, probably the demon speaking for him, cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now, what he is saying there is, in essence, is, I wish you would leave me alone. I wish you would leave me alone. I wish that you would go away. When Jesus returns to earth, he is going to find people that want the blessings and the provisions that he so generously makes available to the good and to the evil. They want all of his blessings, but they don't want Jesus Christ. I've said to parents from time to time, children who grow up and rebel against the values of the home and walk away from Jesus Christ, I've said, you know, I really think that your child wants the blessings of you, the things that you can provide for them, but they don't want your Jesus. That is consistent with this particular individual in Luke chapter 8. Demon-possessed people want the blessings and the provision of God, but they want to be left alone. They want to be in isolation. And isolation in the cemetery is what this individual experienced. And Luke is very careful to tell us that he at one time lived in the city. In the city he was welcome, but then he became demon-possessed, and the demons drove him to the cemetery. They drove him away from people into isolation. I hear all the time, you know, Pastor, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church to worship Jesus. And there's an element of truth to that. And probably a couple of weeks out of the year, I would say that's, uh, I, would, I, would, I would guess that's probably acceptable. But when you receive the gift of eternal life, one of the evidences of your relationship with Jesus Christ is your desire to be with Jesus and His people. One of the evidences of being a child of God is not isolation, not being alone, but it, is, it drives you to be with God's people. It drives you to be with community. Why? Because Jesus has created you to participate in community. You see, that's what heaven is all about. It's a community of the saved. It's the community of the redeemed. Jesus lives in, in community with Father and Spirit. There is the community of the Trinity. And when you see the healing of this particular individual, you find that he is clothed and in his right mind. And one of the things that he wants, we're told toward the end of the story, is that he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to travel with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go into the city and I want you to tell the people what, what I've done for you. I want you to be a missionary. I want you to be effectively used among your own people because I want your testimony to be used by the Spirit of God to draw them into a saving relationship with me and you can participate in community there with your folks.
But the thing that I want you to see is that isolation is not normal. Setting ourselves apart from the community of believers is not normal. And in many, many cases, in some occasions, I will say, it can be demonically motivated. Hence, we need to be careful. So Jesus is going to find a world that wants all the blessings of God, but they do not want Jesus Christ. Number six. When Jesus returns to the earth, he will find a world of people consumed with bizarre human behavior. Now, in light of what we've already said, I suppose this is restating the obvious. Verse 29 says, For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So here's a, here's a man who is not con confined with the chains and the shackles that have been put on him because the demons give him the strength to destroy them and they drive him back into isolation in the cemetery. It's interesting to read Acts chapter 19 where Paul had performed a successful ministry of healing and casting out demons in Ephesus and some of the Jews decided that they wanted some of the action. But the scripture tells us that when they try to exercise demons, the demons turned on them. And if there's any humor in the Bible, this would be one that I would, uh, that I would identify. Verse 15, the demon says to these Jewish guys, I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The demon-possessed guy jumps on these Jewish exorcists who are trying to do what Jesus is doing. They pound the daylights out of them, beat them up, throw them out of the house with no clothes on. That again seems to be another pattern of demon activity is the removal of clothes. Nakedness seems to be uh, something that uh, is fairly consistent. In Revelation 16:13, John writes about a further description of an event that will happen in the tribulation during the six bowls of wrath. Quote, Revelation 16:13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Here John answers the question, how are we going to get all these kings of the earth together to fight against Jesus at the battle of Armageddon? Answer? Out of the mouth of the false prophet, out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast or the Antichrist is going to come three frogs. Hideous looking frogs. They're demons. And the demons, the frogs, are going to perform sign miracles in such a dramatic way that it is going to incite and encourage the leaders of the countries of the world to converge on Armageddon. where the plan is going to be to destroy Israel. 
And just as it appears that Israel's about to be wiped out from the heavens, there's going to be an invasion, and you and I are going to be with Jesus. Remember, the rapture is when Jesus comes for the believer. The revelation is when Jesus comes with the believer. You and I are going to come with him just about the time that Israel's wiped out. And we're going to join Jesus in the rumble. And it's not going to hardly be a fight, folks. But the thing that I wanted you to see here is the, is the motivation of the kingdoms of the earth to converge on the, on the valley of Megiddo is going to be three frogs, three demons, who do sign miracles and convince the religions, uh, excuse me, convince the leaders of the world of their authenticity. So, uh, the world's leaders are drawn into a conflict, the inspiration of sign miracles by frogs. Bizarre. Bizarre. When Jesus comes back to the world, comes back to the earth, he's going to find a world of people consumed with bizarre human behavior. Number seven, and the last. He'll find a world of people with multiple personalities. In verse 30 we read, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. So when the man gives his name, the demons speak for him, and they say, Our name is Legion. Now what's significant about that is that a Roman legion, if that's what he's talking about, a Roman legion consisted of a group of soldiers anywhere from three to 6,000. It's no wonder this poor guy's in torment. It's no wonder he's miserable. If he's got half of that many demons inside of him, if he's got one, he's miserable. But his name is Legion, for there were many demons. The demons begged Jesus to give them permission to enter into the bodies of the herd of pigs in the area, and Jesus agreed to the terms in verse 32. As soon as they left the men and entered the pigs, the animals rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Bizarre. What happened to the demons? Answer, I don't know. What's the possibilities? Could it be that they were sent to the abyss where many of them already are and that's why they were begging Jesus not to send them to the abyss prematurely, but... Some are already there according to what we're told in the book of Second Peter and also in the book of Jude. There are demons already there. They don't want to go there. That's possible, possibly where they went. So from this account, in the sixth chapter, excuse me, of the eighth chapter of Luke, we can conclude that the world that Jesus will see when he returns, number one, a world of people that recognizes many gods. Number two, a world of people with warped consciences. Number three, a world of people living in distorted perspectives of reality. Number four, a world of people driven by self-destructive responses. Number five, a world of people that do not want Jesus Christ. Six, a world of people consumed with bizarre human behavior. And number seven, a world of people with multiple personalities. 
In light of that, just three concluding thoughts, and with this I'll stop. Number one, we need to live in anticipation of our Lord's imminent return. When Jesus gave us information about his return, it was designed to be communicated in such a way that it was imminent. There's nothing else that needs to take place prior to his coming. Number two, increased demon activity in our world can be a sign of the rapture. I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that this equals that, but it's very likely. It was true years ago when Jesus came to earth, born in Bethlehem, demon activity soared in increased response. And it's almost like every other page in the gospel accounts, Jesus is dealing with people who are having problems as a result of being possessed by demons. And number three, it ought to serve to remind us that we live in a world where people need the Lord. And our time to share the good news with them is only limited. We don't have... We don't have unlimited time. Our opportunities are short. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, this would be a good day to do it. Now, I don't tell stuff like this just to scare people, but I remember my pastor used to say to me, if I have to scare you to get you to heaven, I'll do it. If scaring you keeps you out of hell, I'll do it. So I won't apologize for it, but if God has spoken to your heart this morning and you know that you need to receive the gift of eternal life, this would be a good time to do it. And if you're here this morning and you have received the gift of eternal life, this would be a good time to pray for those who haven't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan and your purpose for us. And we know that we can... Uh, be a part of that plan if we're a part of your family. And we know that we're not born into your family, and we know that we're not just Christian because we live in a so-called Christian country, or our parents were Christian. We become a part of your family because of a personal decision, a personal choice that we make, a choice to reject the values of this world and embrace the values of Jesus Christ. So, Lord I, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who's never received the gift of eternal life, I pray that this would be the day. Now, I'm going to pray, and if my words are what you want to tell the Lord as we close the service this morning, you pray quietly after me in your own heart, if you would. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. I believe that you rose from the grave after three days. And I believe that you're coming again to receive your family to yourself. This morning I want to be a part of your family. This morning I confess to you that I have sinned. I have violated your holiness with my words and my actions. 
and I'm sorry. I apologize. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you would come into my life and make me a new person. And I would ask that you would help me to walk in obedience with you from this point on. Because this morning I'm giving my life to you. Thank you for saving me. And how about you, Christian? God has placed you in a situation, in an environment, a part of his vineyard, where there are people who need the Lord. And the opportunity to receive him is not unending. There's coming a time when the time of grace will be over. And it'll be too late. God is speaking to your heart this morning about people that you know who need the Lord. Will you pray for them right now? And will you pray that God will use you this week to speak to them the hope of the gospel? You pray and then I'll close. So, Lord, we can say once again we've been warned. We've been told the truth. And our responsibility is to respond by faith to what you've said. Lord, as we go out into the week, we pray that you would help us to walk in obedience with you. We believe that the words of prophecy are designed to motivate us to, to live lives of holiness in obedience. We look forward to that time when we will see you and we will be with you eternally. And our prayer is the prayer of John in the book of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, the one in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Our prayer for the week from uh, Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.